You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 64. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. It's so great to talk with you this morning. We have a full awesome interview to share with you today. Before I get to that, I have two things I want to run by you first. As you guys know, Life with Intention online registration has been open. It is starting on Monday. I can't believe it's already so close to getting started. The registration closes tomorrow at midnight. So please sign up if you're thinking about joining. There's all those new awesome business and blog bonuses for you totally for free if that's something you're interested in. But if it's not something you're interested in, don't worry. This is not about blogging and business specifically. This course is about your entire life. I'm so excited. We have around 76 students already signed up for this course in counting. I know there's going to be a big rush at the end, so I'm not sure exactly how many new students will be joining us. And we've got all of the alumni that are choosing to retake this course for free because as an alumni, you get to retake the course as often as you'd like with the future classes as well. So a lot of the alumni will be going in to different areas of their lives or poaching the same areas at a deeper level. As I always say, please check with your gut. If your gut is telling you this is a fit, please sign up. Don't let any limiting beliefs stop you from doing so. Your gut knows things far broader and deeper than we can ever know at the surface level of our rationalization. And I know all too well in my own life, times where I've said that I don't have the money or the time to do something, but really I was just scared. I didn't know if the class would work or I didn't know if this was really something I was meant to do. And I wish, like I'm asking you, I had known at the time to just ask my gut so I could have made those decisions from a place of wisdom and peace rather than fear of not knowing. And of course, there is a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if this does turn out to not be the right thing for you, that's totally fine. There's no risk here. Just go for it if it feels right in your gut. In addition, I want to say that I spent last night falling asleep to editing this episode and then woke up to editing this episode. This is something that as much as I try to rationalize why it's not going to be happening in my life and why I am just busy in this particular season, the truth is this season has been a long one for a long time. It is time, as I had a heart-to-heart with Mr. Lively last night, for me to look for an assistant, a commander-in-chief that's going to help me get things done so I can focus on this work I'm doing with you, but still continue to run the business as usual. If you're in Austin, Texas, and you love the show, and you have the flexibility to do a part-time assistantship, the hours will vary week to week depending on the workload, but I'm guessing between four and eight hours a week during the workday. If that seems like a fit for you and you really want to help out, please reach out to me at jess at jesslively.com. Unfortunately for those who are remote, this is not going to just be a virtual assistantship. I need help with things physically here in my studio. So I'm sorry that it's not a virtual assistantship. Also for those who have day jobs, unfortunately I'm working very, very hard to get my life back after work. So this assistantship will be something that will happen during regular work hours, but they are flexible hours. So if you're someone who has a part-time job or maybe you're in college and you have that flexibility, this could be the perfect thing for you. 
Now let's go on to today's episode. We're talking with Jay Papasan, a co-author of The One Thing. The One Thing is a New York Times bestseller, number one Amazon bestseller, number one Wall Street bestseller. This is a huge book that has been out there for a while now, so many of you guys may have heard of it, but for those who haven't, this book is incredible. We're going to talk about how to prioritize to our one thing in each area of our lives to make things simpler and to expand the results that we get as a result of focusing on the one thing. We're going to cover a lot in this episode, and I can't wait to get started. Let's go to the show. Thank you, Jay, so much for coming on The Lively Show today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's get started and tell the listeners about your background and how you got to where you are. Sure. Jay Papasan grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, stayed in town through college, but always was looking outward. So I went overseas after college and worked in France for about three years as a translator and then went back to New York, which is where I had family and just said, you know what, I'm going to go there. I got my master's at NYU, ended up in publishing, met my wife. This is where the real story begins. We quit our jobs, hers in PR, mine in publishing, went backpacking for about five and a half months in North Africa and Europe. Great way to kick off our marriage. And then settled here in Austin, Texas. My professional journey, you know, writer, teacher, getting into publishing after grad school. When I moved to Austin, there's no big professional publishing. I'd been at HarperCollins Publishers. And my wife said, you know what? You've always wanted to be a writer. Why don't you do that? So I freelanced for a while, and that was great. Got in Texas Monthly, some other good magazines. And then I took a job at a little, small, regional real estate company called Keller Williams. Back then, there were 6,700 agents and 27 employees. It's just this little tiny company. And so I got exposed to the founder, and it turns out he wanted to write books. And so we started collaborating in 2002. And since then, we've collaborated on 12 different books, six of them national bestsellers. And the most recent one, The One Thing, is I guess the reason that you and I came together originally to talk about that book. But that's been kind of the journey, you know, a little bit meandering, always had books in it. My wife brought me to Austin. Austin brought me to Gary, my writing partner, and we've been writing books ever since. And I love that you didn't just go out there and assume that it had to look one way that it does maybe for other people, where writing has to be the solo project that you do on your own. You have to be self-employed, for example, in order to do what you love, that it's much broader than that. That really makes me happy because oftentimes we can pigeonhole ourselves into one way of doing something when there's so many opportunities out there that can challenge and grow us and provide such a bigger platform than we ever could on our own. I love that you saw that. It took me years to figure that out because I'd always envisioned myself being like this fiction writer, you know, writing short stories or the great American novel, whatever. And when I was writing real estate books, I wasn't sure that counted. I mean, I'll just be honest with you. I have friends that were journalists and there was this kind of thing of you're writing commercially. And I was like, no, we're actually being very creative in what we're doing. And I love the research. And it, it took me about four or five years to really come around to, wait, I'm exercising the same muscles, getting the same joy from language that I did when I was had a cigarette and a bottle of scotch up in the middle of the night trying to pretend to be some great writer. And I might have followed that path and hopefully quit the cigarettes like I did and all that stuff. But, <laughs> you know, that image of being the writer hunched over alone. The Hemingway. Right, exactly. Tortured writer. Here I am in an office and I have an assistant and I have a team. And I really enjoy that. I really uh, feel like this was the right way. Collaboration, in some ways, I think is 
just as challenging or more challenging than writing solo. And it's definitely worked for me. So yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because there is a lot of tropes out there. People have a lot of preconceptions about what it means to be a writer. And that's just not necessarily true. I think there's a lot of ways to walk down that path. Amen. I'm so glad that you feel that way too. And hopefully this does expand the idea of what writing needs to be. Let's talk about the one thing because I'm obsessed with it. I know other people are obsessed with it. It's a New York Times bestseller. How did you guys come up with this concept? And what is the one thing? It's funny. We actually started writing another book. The the real estate market was shifting. And we were trying to write a course. One of my side jobs when I would write book Gary's, I helped run our university here. And Gary said, you know what, I want to take this course home. I want to spice it up a little bit. And I remember he wrote just an eight-page essay called The Power of One. And it was all about, in a service industry, your one thing. It was maybe the first time that language just showed up. Your one thing is all about going out and getting new clients. And people forget that. And it was very powerful. It was the thing that everybody talked about. And I remember I'd been in publishing since the mid-90s. I thought, wow, that's it. That's his thing. He grew this little real estate company to today. It's got 111,000 agents all over the world, number one in our industry. He's really smart. He's really hardworking. But he's not the smartest guy in the room always. He doesn't work later or longer hours. The thing that really distinguished his business career is his ability to identify the priority and stay on it longer than anyone else. And that little essay kind of bloomed, you know, about five years of research, which ended up in the one thing, which started with a hypothesis that if you focus your life down to the things that matter the most, both in the moments that you are living and kind of aiming down the road, that you'll have the best possible life. Or as Gary said, you'll have a life of no regrets. That's kind of what we tried to do. And we tried to make it research-based. We both have a thing about books that are all opinions. Drives us a little bit batty. So that's the nutshell. Can you help people take a very well-trodden idea? Like everybody says, do less, achieve more. Could we make that practical and make it resonate for folks so that they go, wow, I actually do need this. The Grand Experiment was the book. So far, it's been pretty successful. It, It seems to be reaching folks like you. Absolutely. And one of the things I loved, and I think this is Gary's story, big consultant comes in and says, you need to hire 14 positions in order to grow to the next level. And so he fired himself as CEO in order to spend the year and a half or whatever it took for him to actually go find those people. Is that really true? That's absolutely true. And I don't know if we wrote this in the book, but I remember the consultant, his name is Bain. I've met him many, many times. He said, it took Jesus 12, it'll take you 14. (laughs) Shocked Gary that his one thing wasn't about him being a better leader or whatever. It was actually about getting out of the way. And I think it's a very hard thing for a founder to do. I'm a partner in a small private equity company with Gary and another man named Mitch Johnson. And you see founders, they are the spark. They're the people that see the world differently and launch something, but they're not always the ones to run it. And that Gary got that, was able to set his ego aside and make his one thing replacing himself was really cool. And it absolutely, you can go back. It was 1995. And from 1996 to 2006, remember, we're getting into the downturn. We saw it in our industry as early as 2005. Our company grew by an average of 40% or more year over year the entire time. Even during 2008, 2009? We did not those years, but we remained, our profitability grew every single year, even through the massive shift. And I look at that and I think, what happened in 1996? That's when Gary replaced himself with Mo Anderson. 
so he could focus on being the vision. Where do we need to be going? What will it look like when we get there? How will it feel along the way? Those are the questions he asked. And then he brought in Mo Anderson, this amazing executive who had great success and she was a great teacher, but she became his implementation. Like she was going to build the systems and implement the vision. And they worked amazingly well together. And then she transitioned and they transitioned again. But he, once he stepped out of that job, he's never had to hire for it again. The people who stepped into it have replaced themselves along the way. It's really kind of unique to watch a founder step out of the way and stay out of the way. That's incredible. I can't even fathom that. But at the same time, it sounds like it's probably a huge key for growth for a lot of people out there. No one succeeds alone, right? And it's something that there's all these myths out there, like we were talking about, the, the tormented writer, the creative that has to do it alone. But there's just story after story of, I mean, Oprah Winfrey, if she had not met her attorney, she had to go and incorporate. And he said, well, who's controlling the rights to your show? And then she goes, well, you should form a corporation. And then what you're doing is licensing it. And he just flipped the whole conversation from her being a star on someone else's show to owning the material. And they had to come up with the name quickly. So they just flipped her name and called it Harpo. And that lawyer ended up getting 5% of Harpo Enterprises, which is massive, and later earning another 5% to help her run it. But without him, where would Oprah be? Yeah, I've actually heard her say that she appreciates how everybody undervalued her <laughs> so she could even make that happen, actually. <laughs> she thanks them yeah. for not believing in the vision that she had so that she got the deal that she got when she did it or something along those lines. I love those stories. And the more you dig deep into, you know, whether it's the Beatles, McCartney, Lennon, you know, it always takes more than one. And even in artistic endeavors, there's usually a story behind the story. It doesn't always get told because we want to believe that it is about being alone. But that's something he got and he recognized it and had the ability to step out of the way. And I think we could all learn from that. So let's go back to the one thing. So for Gary, it was getting out of his own way and hiring help. But for other people out there just looking for their one thing, whether they're self-employed, whether they're mothers, or whether they are going to a job they love nine to five, how do we figure out what our one thing is? And what does that have to do with dominoes? Okay, that's a great question. This idea that if we can just focus down to the things that really matter, easy to say, and in this world with our multiple screens and cell phones and everything else, it's really hard to do. So I get that. The dominoes comes in, and it's just a metaphor. And hopefully everybody who's listening to this podcast is at some point in their life lined up dominoes, right? You've lined them up so you could knock them all down. And so it takes a little time to line them up. But the metaphor there is, Doing one thing, knocking over the first domino, if you've been strategic and lined things up, can actually achieve many things. And in our research, we actually found a group that had lined up almost 4.5 million dominoes. And the video we found, like it took, I think, 13 minutes for them all to fall down. So there is this ability to have all this potential energy in your action so that the thing that you do is incredibly levered. And the flip there that kind of like, especially my kids love this part of the book, is that we found a guy that wrote in the American Journal of Physics that a two-inch domino could actually knock over a three-inch domino. They can knock over dominoes that are 50% bigger. He had actually built dominoes so that by the eighth domino is as big as a door. And he described as what began with a gentle tick ended with a large slam. And we just asked the question, well, if you continue that, where will that end up? I want to say by the 33rd, starting with a two-inch domino, 
it would be 3,000 feet above Everest. And by the 57th, just growing at that pace from two inches, it would reach almost entirely from the Earth to the moon. And if you graph that out, and we do have that as an illustration in our book, it looks a little bit like a hockey stick. It looks like nothing's happening, and then all of a sudden you see this explosion at the end, and it's kind of mind-boggling. I think, after reading story after story on companies and individuals, that that's what a lot of big success looks like, extraordinary success, and that's the subtitle of the book. And that's a distinction I usually make. There's a lot of ways to be successful in an average way, but I think there's a lot fewer choices if you're going for extraordinary. And that shape, that hockey stick graph, that shows up a lot. People are doing the right thing, and it feels like nothing's happening. And then they look up one day, and as you were sharing with me, you've been working hard on your podcast, and all of a sudden, you're like in the top five in all these categories. Well, 5%. I mean, not the top 5%. Top five would be a little bit, maybe someday, if the if hockey graph continues. By the time this releases later this week, then. But <laughs> no. my point being, it's often the people who understand the big priority and kind of boringly, in some ways, plugging away at it, you look up and it'll surprise them how much progress they've made. So that's kind of this idea. It's, it's not just about living simpler. And it definitely is about that. And that is where a lot of people bond with the books. Like, yes, I'd like to be doing fewer things. There's also this strategic element about if I ask right now in my life, and that's the focusing question, and if we can go there if you want, but it's about what's the biggest lever in my life? If I was, could only do one thing for my marriage, what would that be? If I could only do one thing for my relationship with my son, for my craft, what would it be? Most people know the answer to that question, and either they don't trust it or they know that it's hard work and don't want to do it. And I think making that leap and implementing that one thing, people will start to see those results faster than they think. I agree. And I think that it reminds me of a few other books that I love that touch on similar themes like The Slight Edge and Four Hour Work Week. Also talk about the importance of, well, the compound interest is a huge theme in The Slight Edge, which equates to this idea of the dominoes. You're actually showing people how to actually figure out what the one thing is for every part of their lives. And then the four-hour work week with Tim Ferriss talks a lot about how you need to find the Pareto's principle, which you also talk about, which is finding the one thing that's going to have a disproportionate effect on each area of your life. So that's what you're really asking people to do is figure out what's the thing, you say this over and over again in the book, that will make everything else easier or non-existent. Did I get that right? Almost exactly perfect. I'll restate it just because I think that there is some purpose in the way it evolved. It came from Gary's coaching calls many years ago, and it just evolved. What's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary? The first part is what's the one thing I can do, not two or three. You're really saying, if I can only do one thing, where do I start? And it's what I can do, not should, would, or could. I hear a lot of people saying, what, what's the one thing I would do or I could do? Get into action. We read Shel Silverstein to our kids, and there's that great poem, all the woulda, coulda, shouldas, all ran away and hid from one little did. You're looking for an action, such that by doing it just says that anything you choose has to have more dominoes behind it. And the end is, what's the scale? Everything will be easier or unnecessary. So you're looking for the biggest domino run in your life. I find, because I've done lots of little coaching sessions with people and then followed up, I usually ask, circle back to me in a month and tell me how that's going. The answer they come up with is usually almost always the right answer or so close that within a week they had adjusted their activities to the right thing. Just because getting into action gave them the feedback they needed to know, oh, it's just right over there. That's it. That's the question. 
one of the things that is really powerful that I pulled from the many hundreds of highlights I have in this book is, (laughs) (laughs) I told you, Jay, earlier that I have so many highlights, I can only pick from the first 30% of them because there were so many. But one of them was, you need to be doing fewer things with more effect instead of doing more things with side effects. Can you extrapolate a little? I'll say it again for those listening because I think it's so powerful. You need to be doing fewer things with more effect instead of doing more things with side effects. I think that this world that we're living in, this age, when we did some crazy kind of geeky research about how smartphones reduce the barriers in our life and how we're just not really there yet in terms of how we deal with this accessibility to information, to other people, to the world. There are so many choices. The world isn't saying, no, you can't do that the way it might have been 100 years ago. We have a lot of yeses and our inability to say no. So we're doing all this stuff, but because we're not focused, one, we're not achieving much, right? It's like nibbling around the edges of something rather than really diving into it. And then the effort to do a lot of stuff, I mean, there's more and more research. When you're just trying to do two things at once, you're actually releasing cortisol in your brain, the stress hormone. You get dopamine at the same time, so you get this little reward system that says, oh, this is fun, this is, I'm getting to do this stimulating thing, but you're actually stressing yourself out. And on a grander scale, I think that there's this vicious cycle we can fall into when your to-do list runs a page and a half. Your calendar is so full of obligations and even opportunities that you're kind of maybe mapping out, where will I have time for myself, much less like eating lunch or the bathroom. And I say those things like in a seminar or in a coaching, and you just see heads nodding. Like people get that they have overcommitted in their lives. They're trying to do too much. And the result is, one, we feel stressed out. And then I actually think we start making progressively worse decisions. You know, the metaphor I use is people under stress make bad decisions. Think of the character in the B horror movie. Instead of running out the front door, they run up the stairs. <laughs> You're barricading yourself in the bathroom. Really bad plan. Under stress, we make similar decisions. I think that the biggest is we take our to-do list and instead of doing the most important thing on it, we do the things that we can cross off the fastest. I just want to make the list shorter, even if the most important things stay on it. And I've been guilty of that so many times when I get in the weeds. That's what we mean. The side effects is you can fall into this cycle of stress and loose ends that stress you out. And then it just can compound. So I'd much rather be doing fewer things than having a real impact on my life. I just had a huge aha moment for myself that drew a few of these themes together in the opposite way of what we're talking about. I just had an interview with Jessica Turner of The Fringe Hours, who's going to be coming on the show in February earlier today. We were talking about how I have the guilty habit of checking my Instagram while walking down the street, just a few blocks on the sidewalk. (laughs) I get this sense of what you were saying, the dopamine effect, because it's multitasking. I'm walking and I'm checking, and it feels like this little hit of dopamine, and it feels good. But just like the dominoes we talked about earlier and the progression of the hockey stick in my day, if I start letting social media checking become a frequent thing. It's like one leads to two, it leads to, you know, the escalation. My whole day, that door domino that's super big ends up being the distractions I have in my day. So I haven't actually, it's almost the reverse of the hockey stick, but in the unproductive direction rather than the direction when you focus on the one thing. This is great. There's a quote in there that I'm going to misquote it, but basically people think that they can decide their futures. No, they decide their habits and their habits decide their futures. And it's this idea that the hockey stick is just a powerful good habit. And the more you use that and it grows, 
like you work for something until it works for you, that can become this really virtuous cycle. If you can flip the hockey stick over, you know what, I'm just going to have a cheeseburger with bacon today. In the short term, there's no ill effects, right? I'm only doing this a couple times a week and I work out. The hockey stick doesn't flip over until you're like 55 and you're having valve surgery 20 years too soon. There's a lot of things that the feedback cycle is deceptively quiet until it's too loud to ignore. And you want to be on the positive end of those things. And that's why we say, start with asking the question. At least be purposeful in the pursuit of those things. Yes, I'm definitely standing convicted here trying to make sure that I am proactive about it because it is such a slippery slope. And you guys talk about the power of having a powerful morning habit. I do find if I do my morning habit in a really great way early on, that does help. But I still think it's interesting to keep in mind this, I call it e-brain, is when we get to this point where we're kind of living online and we're not really, we're treading water. It feels productive to be checking stuff online, but really we're getting nowhere. We're not doing our one things. Well, in our industry, you know, in the real estate industry that Gary built his company, it's sales. And so I've been guilty. I'm, I'm in book sales, right? And promotion. And I, you know, I have an Instagram account too. And I can fall into this trap and I can pretend I'm networking when I'm really just not working. <laughs> it's, it's the difference between networking and not working. And I actually wrote that. We wrote a book called Social. That's a little free download on our website where we tried to kind of break down how this stuff worked for the real estate industry. That was the thing I took away. I put it on a sticky note and I put it on my browser because this idea of networking was really easy to justify behavior that wasn't necessarily productive. And in the end, you talked about habits. I kind of allow myself a window in the morning and I did the research that if you get on there and if you're trying to do it for your business, posting early enough, I want to get a post that starts getting likes on Facebook on the East Coast around 8 a.m. my time. And if I do it right, it'll ride all the way to the West Coast. And I just thought, all right, I've got a window. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up at the prime time for me if I'm going to post and I'll check in at my lunch break and I'll check in at the end of the day. That way I can guard my brand in case people are saying not good things. But I'm just giving myself very, very tangible amounts. And that became my social media marketing habit. And it prevented me from justifying every time I'm waiting in line. You know, you can lose a lot of time or walk into a tree. I mean, I've watched people walk into things. <laughs> I don't want to be one of them. I think that what you're saying is going to probably be ringing true for a lot of people listening, myself included. I want to work on that. And one of the things for me, after I work really hard on these episodes and I finally get them launched, oftentimes on Thursdays, for example, depending on the week, I may be launching it right as it goes. And then I want to like look around and see the feedback from the Instagram, the Twitter, or the comments, partially because my ego feels like maybe there's going to be a mistake or a little error in links or something like that that I'll need to fix. But also really, it just becomes this e-brain effect, the hockey stick just kind of going in the unproductive direction where I'm just hanging out consuming the feedback rather than working on the next thing and letting this go. So personally, I'm trying to work on creating a ritual around sending out my social media and then stepping back into my regular life and having faith that, you know, hopefully the links and stuff are working without having to hover around it. So I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. And there's a lot of wisdom in what you're doing, actually, that interaction, you're showing up on the post and interacting at least in the initial burst, can really help build your following. So good luck with that. I hope you find the right balance. <laughs> I know, I'm working on it. So let's talk about what's the difference between a to-do list and a success list. 
Oh, it's great. I mean, we walked right up to it. Most of us have a list of things to do, and the list shows up chronologically in the order we thought of them. It happens like with my apps. I've got the Reminders app on my phone, and I've got some categories, and I'll write down movie recommendations and things like that. But it's not a real to-do list for me. It's just a way for me to record information. Unfortunately, our task list and our to-do list get all mixed up. Pareto's principle says 20% of what you do gives you 80% of your results. And we're saying, you keep saying, what's the 20% until you get to one thing? So here's the simple trick. When you look at your to-do list in the morning, you need to number it. Of all the things that you should be doing, there's probably only a, a handful, right? Of all the things you could be doing, there's only a handful that you should be doing. And number those. If you've got more than about five or six things on that list, you're probably getting into the trivial many. I think the whole point of the four-hour work week is for people to identify their top three and do them first thing. We're just taking it one step further. Identify your number one and block time for that that day first thing. Get your most important work done. I mean, great um, successful people have a successful day before noon. And for, I know a lot of creatives on your show, if you're a musician, if you're an artist, the ritual of showing up at the same time every day to do your work is really powerful. That's how people become amazing. They put in a little effort on an ongoing basis, usually a few hours of practice every day. I know writers who get up at 4 a.m. because they can control their mornings, and they just do that. So that's that to-do list. You identify your number one, not just so you intellectually know what it is, but so you can do it first. Yeah, so you guys talk about doing four-hour chunks if possible. Professionally, right? If I'm a professional musician and I truly want to have an extraordinary career, Science says I need to be putting in four hours of practice a day, and it could take me 10 years to get there. That's the math, the 10,000-hour rule. If you were giving, like any of us work, a 40-hour work week, but the four hours a day roughly equates, you're looking up, and about half of your work day is on your one thing. The people who do that in business and small business that we observe, they really put disproportional effort, usually into lead generation, right, into getting those things out there. For me, it's writing books. For you, it might be your content. People who do that tend to see disproportionate results on the backside. And it just showed up again and again and again to where it's like, okay, duh. This is what really big success looks like. People are really kind of having crazy work days. They put so much effort into a handful of things, and then their world gets kind of crazy around them. But they know not to sweat that stuff because they're doing the important stuff. I was happy when you guys mentioned that by doing the one thing, other things aren't going to get done. And you actually made a point to address that so people weren't confused if they found themselves not getting other things done because they're spending four hours a day on one thing. Big success is inherently messy. And I think anyone who tells you that it's neat and professional looking at all times, I'm going to tell you that, that they're really pulling the wool over your eyes. Big success sometimes looks a little ragged around the edges because they're so focused on doing the most important thing. And those people who stick at that for a long time, it's just amazing what you see on the other side. So I just think it's okay. Be at peace with the little messes here and there. If you're doing the most important things, those will usually take care of themselves. Or, I love this, you'll be able to afford to pay someone to take care of them. Funny you say that because I'm thinking about myself rolling out about on Thursdays to finish off the show. And I am trying to work on and hiring, like you said, so I can have some help, at least with the Tuesday show. But there are times where it's one p.m. and people are tweeting me saying, hey, where's the show? And I'm like, I'm working on it. I'm still getting it ready. And it takes forever. 1 p.m. I haven't eaten anything substantial yet. And I'm still in my pajamas. So it's nice to hear that the jagged around the edges thing 
is there because that's probably really happening in my own career. But the show's success is still moving forward because I'm pouring so much of myself and the time into that one thing. And there's probably no one better to nurture it at this stage of its growth right now, right? To get it really right. And you've got that kind of artistic clarity about the way you want the sound to be and everything else. And I've gotten that from being with you. Over time, as it grows, all those things need to be delegated, right? And just when is the question? It may eventually get there. You're right. For now, it's definitely on my plate. So let's talk about something you've touched on a little bit, but we haven't gone into yet in a complete sense. And it really changed my whole paradigm about the idea of multitasking. Can you explain where multitasking comes from? The whole concept, the word is one of those things that we put a label on something that we didn't understand. And we immediately thought, well, that makes sense. But it really was confusing. And in our research, I mean, basically multitasking came from this idea that computers were doing multiple things at the same time because they could do so many things. Remember the early days of the computers when it was like a big block. It might have a whole room in an IBM that was computing things, but that was lightning fast. And it was all, uh, my, my iPhone's probably more powerful than those computers, but back then it blew people's mind away. And so this idea of multitasking, the computer was doing all of these functions at the same time, but really it was just switch tasking. It was alternating between them, but it could do it so fast, it looked like it was simultaneous. So the funny thing is, when you go out to ask the impact of multitasking, researchers rarely use that word unless it's in the title because they want to publish. They call it switch tasking. And basically what it says, and this, it's nice to understand what's happening. So then you can understand why it's not working. You're working on a task. Say you're writing an email, an important email, and you decide to switch. The switch, the decision, is just instantaneous. Squirrel! And you're looking, you know. (laughs) Twitter. (laughs) Twitter. Oh, Instagram! Right? Someone really famous is following me now. So you make the decision, and the decision is instantaneous. And your focus gets diverted to this new direction. And what researchers now know is that when the rules between the two games are substantially different, you know, the rules for writing that email, maybe it was about to your accountant, and then you're switching to this other thing, there's a lack time. If you've ever been focused on something and someone starts talking to you, you can hear their voice. You know they're talking to you, but you actually can't comprehend it. And you say, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? You know that they were talking to you, but you couldn't understand it. That's that lag time. Your brain has to reorient to the new rules. Researchers think that this switching cost costs people about 28% of their average workday. When I saw that, I was kind of stunned. One, and it explained a lot of conversations with my wife where I said, I'm sorry, what did you say? (laughs) And it made her laugh a little bit too. But it's also like, okay, so there's a big cost. If I really was being focused at work and not doing some of this unintentional switching back and forth, maybe I could get the same work done in four days that it was taking me five. What would I do with a whole extra day of my life? Would I earn more? Would I treat myself to something special every week? Would I spend more time with my family? I mean, I don't get to answer that because I'm still not living that. We identified six costs, but I'll, I'll highlight some of the big ones. Time, we just hit that, right? The more you flip back and forth, you're losing time all day long and you're not even aware of it. It costs you effectiveness. There's a guy named Clifford Nass that asked all these people to take different tests. And what's funny is this guy was a scientist. He was no good at multitasking and he wasn't trying to prove it wrong. He wanted to find out why they were so good at what they did. So he went in with the presupposition that multitaskers had a special gift. 
he had this room, I think it was like 208 students, I don't remember that specific, but half of them were high taskers, they thought they were really good, and half of them were low taskers. What he discovered is, and I'm just kind of paraphrasing the quote in the New York Times, that multitaskers were suckers for irrelevancy. They were lousy at everything. On every single test, even the test of multitasking, the people who said they were bad at multitasking performed better than the other group. So across the board, we perform worse, even if we think we're doing it better. We're losing time, we're losing effectiveness, and kind of the one that hit me is the more time you spend switched to the secondary task. I'm on Instagram. I'm going to pick on your Instagram because it's in my head. And I'm, it's my guilty pleasure too, right? So I switched to Instagram. The longer I spend switched there, the less likely I am to get back to my primary task, which might have been reading a novel or something that I was actually more focused on and more interested in. But that's how loose ends pile up at the end of the day. It's because you're switching and you're forgetting to go back and finish. So when I just look at those three, cost me time, which is your most viable resource, it makes me less effective at what I do. And at the end, I get more loose ends, which I really can't stand. I like things to be a little neat. It just didn't add up to me at all. How can we plan ahead with the one thing? So we have one thing. Some people might be thinking, what happens when I'm done with the one thing? <laughs> Planning with the one thing. Wherever you are in your life, right? If you've got multiple endeavors, page 114 of the book, we actually have seven circles. I think it starts with clarity. I would ask the focusing question, what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier and necessary around the big things in your life? What can I do for my art? What can I do for my family? What can I do for my business? If you've got my physical life, kind of find your answers. And then the way we kind of say the implementation happens is we want you to make an appointment with yourself to do those things. So for your work work, now we already touched this, you're striving to get to four hours a day where you're really making a huge bet on doing your most important work. You know, the artist is painting paintings, the musician is practicing or performing, whatever that is, the coder is coding. They're doing that thing. And then I look around my life and after you've established one habit, you look to add the next. And to me, I look up and I'm like, big success can be a progression of plotting these habits into your life. If you looked at my calendar, my wife and I, few years ago, found the habit of working out with a trainer in the mornings. It's the only time we could do it with our small kids without having to go separately to the gym. So we started getting up at 5 a.m., having a trainer come to us. And we started having date night, which was kind of our personal life, on Wednesday nights because we could consistently do it. On Saturday night, there was too much competition. And we have little, little power habits like that that we've sprinkled into our lives that have become kind of rituals for us. The way we talk about that framework is you understand that knowing your one thing, implementing it, oftentimes about just scheduling it with yourself. We found some research that didn't make it into the book because it was too late, that people who are really motivated to do something, about 35% of them do it. But people who are really motivated and also will make a commitment on this time, at this day, at this place, I will do it, about 94% of them achieve what they said. The simple act of narrowing it down into the when. They know why they want to do it, but they've added a when and where to it that become many times more effective. So in a short run, you identify your one thing and you put it on your calendar. This is when I'm going to do it. And it seems really too simple, but it's incredibly effective. So is that what you're going for? Because there's another bigger sense of going out in the future and working your way backwards, which is kind of on a grander scale how we plan with the book. Which way were you angling with that, Jess? 
Yeah, that's what I was going to go with. So I can just paraphrase there. The one thing you can also look at from the lens of perhaps this year, what is the one thing in each of these areas that you could do that would make everything else easier or unnecessary? You got it. We called it goal setting to the now. And Gary just kind of offhandedly say, look, the only reason we set goals is so we know how to behave right now. And I really had to digest that. Yeah. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah. If I go out in the future and say that my big dream, like the thing that really is motivating me, the reason I'm working at the post office is so that I can become a jazz singer and I want to headline some famous jazz club. I might go out in the future. And if that's my big one goal is driving a lot of other things in my life, where would I have to be in five years in order to feel like I was on track to achieve that goal? And then the beauty here, and this is the way people like Gary's brains work, and I'm trying to train mine, is that they've taken something that's very fuzzy. It's way out in the future. I can't hold a note. I want to be the star. So five years from now, what would I have to do? And I actually did this exercise with someone who dreamed, and she goes, well, I would probably have to know 25 amazing jazz standards and perform that at an incredible level. And so we wrote that down. Then you just say, in order to be on track, to achieve that goal in five years, where would I have to be at the end of this year? So you're narrowing the scope. You're just saying to do that thing, where would I have to be a little closer to you? And she goes, well, let's just divide it by five. I would have to have mastered five jazz standards. Great. Well, what would you have to do by the end of this month? The one thing to feel like you were really on track to do that. And she's like, well, maybe I would have to master one. Great. And then we work our back backwards to what would you have to do this week to be on track for the month, to be on track for the year, to be on track for the big goal down the road. And then you say, what do I have to do today? And it's this sort of telescoping vision of going way out. Now I know what direction I'm headed. And let me just kind of work my way backwards. It's amazingly effective at giving you direction today. Because otherwise, if you just say, I want to do this in five years, you have no idea how to behave today in order to feel like you're making progress that way. I love it. It's like counting back the dominoes from the big door to the tiny two-inch domino. Well put. Well put. Exactly right. You're working backwards from your big goal. I think this book is amazing, as you probably can tell from all of the highlights I have and how much I love (laughs) talking about this with you. But let's take a turn and look more personally at your life and talk about what doubts or resistance you've had to face in your own life or overcome. Gosh, you know, I'm a writer. The first thing that comes to mind, and it's, it's something that a lot of my friends face, is there's always this imposter syndrome where you wake up sweating in the middle of the night and you're like, oh my God, we sent a manuscript to the publisher, everyone's going to laugh at us. It's going to be horrible. I think that everyone is plagued at some point by self-doubt. And I know that's been something that at different levels of my life, I've had to really get purposeful and fight through. Even though you've had a million books in print? Oh gosh. All right. So we got now, and I'm not bragging, but this is to accentuate what you just said. I think we're now at 1.7 of all of our books. Yeah. Have you recently felt the imposter syndrome or is that more in your earlier career? When we were working on the one thing, all right, so five years involved in this project. And during that time, we did a lot of other things, right? But we were consistently putting in time, making this book happen. We had in the summer, right before we had to send it to the press, we had to shorten it from 440 pages to like 220. Our publisher was really wise. He goes, you know, when people buy a book called The One Thing, they don't expect a doorstop. (laughs) And so... There's all this work, and then it's like it happened too quickly. I remember Ellen Marks, who was our uh, director of marketing at the time, 
She's a, a tough cookie. She absolutely will tell you what you need to know to be successful, right? She's a straight shooter. I got a note from her as one of our earliest readers of the manuscript, and I save it. It's, it's right here in my basket. If I could step away from the computer, I would grab it. And she just went on for like the whole card about how moving it was and how it surprised her, how good it was. And I knew she wasn't BSing me. And like I started crying. I, it was emotional. I was like, thank God. Because you're so close to your work. It's hard to have perspective. It's one of the reasons. If you get lucky, like I, I know I did and I think you did. It's like when you have a great spouse or partner, they really give you that perspective all the time. That's it for me. You know, self-confidence can show up at weird times. You have to power your way through it and believe that there's people around you, again, comes back to that for me, that are going to be there for you if you need them. Yeah. So when you send it off, you were still nervous even after all the other millions of books that are printed. You're still nervous sending off. How did you overcome that fear and just send it to the publisher? Because I had to. If you create things, you're driven. Ultimately, the reason you do it is not always just for yourself. I've heard people say that. I'm not that. Intrinsically, I enjoy the act of creation. The reason I'm doing them is to help other people. And when people like you say, wow, the book really helped me, that is it. That is the power, right? And so there is still this weird moment of having worked on it and been close to it. We've actually written books that we didn't publish. They weren't that good. And we've gotten all the way to the finish line on a, on a huge draft and said, you know what? Maybe we're not ready to write this yet. We need to put this on the shelf for a while. Stay humble on the journey, you know, and, and, and always be striving to be better. And you want it to be your best work. I love that. That's actually a perfect segue. So what would you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey? on this journey, it's really easy if you get the concept. I just have to identify the priority. I've literally seen people go to page 114, which to me is a powerful way to interact. Just score each area and then pick the one with the highest or low score and then say, I'm going to make a commitment to doing what we call a 66-day challenge, building a habit around this thing. People will go out and try to start seven habits at once right after reading a book called The One Thing. So <laughs> I would tell you, pick your battles. Try to pick something that you at least feel confident that you know the answer and try that on for a while. I've talked to people who've done really simple things like, you know what, the thing that would change my life in all the areas of my life more than anything is if I would just start going to bed on time. I call that a linchpin habit because it is, I guess it's the trigger domino for all the other things to go well the next day. There you go. That's a great, I mean, I, I've heard that language too. It's not language that we wrote with, but you're right. It's, it is a linchpin and it's not sexy. It's not something that you want to put on Facebook. Hey, everybody, I'm going to bed early tonight. It's not like I'm on a diet. And it's not the normal things that people go to. But sometimes the simplest things can have an amazing impact. And just to have faith to write out that long part and wait for some of those results. Because people will show up and they'll go, hey, you know, I've been doing this exercise thing for a month and I've gained weight. But then you come back two months later and they might have actually only lost five pounds, but they look like a different person because they went through that little, that messy middle. So I'd say pick one thing and, and stick to it for a while. We said 66 days in our research was how long it took, which is like three times as long as the old 21 days to form a habit that most people used to throw around. So pick your thing and stick with it for a while until you can start to get the feedback loop. That's when this starts to really make sense for people. Yeah. And as you say in the book that it becomes automatic, it doesn't mean that you have to have the same level of drive or motivation to do it. The habit takes over and it's more on autopilot. So you don't have to feel like you're fighting an uphill battle every day. Yeah. When we started working out at 5am, that sucked. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I can remember, like it was a couple of months into it, when I started waking up before the alarm clock went off. And I was like, oh, my body has been trained into this new behavior. And it was never really as hard as it was, again, unless we really messed up and went to a late movie the night before. But for the most part, you get to this place where, you know what, that's about as easy as it's going to get. And it's a lot easier than when I began. I love that. Thank you so much, Jay, for coming on the show and spending time with us. This was amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to share the book with your audience. It's really cool to see you engage in it so highly. And there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. And Jay, thanks for coming on the show. If you would like to send Jay a message, you can go over to Twitter. His handle is at Jay Papasan, J-A-Y-P-A-P-A-S-A-N. And of course, as always, you can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at Jess Season Cat Lively. All of the show notes for today's episode are at JessLively.com slash jpapasan. As I mentioned earlier, Life with Intention online registration is closing tomorrow. You can sign up and register at LifeWithIntentionOnline.com. And I am on the lookout for my commander-in-chief. So if you are interested in that position, please email me at jess at jesslively.com. Thank you so much for listening, and may something wonderful happen to you today. <laughs>